You ever wonder what it would be like to get ambushed by the Apache? Now, just me? I imagine it would be quite the jarring experience. One second, you're half asleep in the saddle, just daydreaming, maybe thinking about little Juanita over there in White Oaks. And the next, you're plunged into complete and utter chaos. Horses rearing as men drop to the ground, cursing and jerking rifles out of scabbards as they dive for cover. A brief moment of extreme violence mixed with fear and confusion, and then silence. A silence sporadically punctured as the natives fall back and hurl insults and pot shots your way, hoping to get luckier, goad you out into the open. Those who are brave or foolish enough to stick their heads out do so carefully, scanning the horizon for the telltale sign of sun glitting off of rifle barrels or the dust kicked up from a muzzle blast. Anything to determine where their attackers are hiding or how many of them are out there. The others hug the desert floor as tight as possible, the scalding ground burning from below and the high desert sun baking from above. You don't dare make a move other than try to make a bulwark of sorts out of some rocks within reaching distance. Blistering stones that won't stop no bullet, but good lord willing, they might just deflect an arrow. And God, you're thirsty. Too much of Beaver's rock gut the night before and you and the boys ain't got but one canteen between you. Ain't no way in hell that's going to last till night and besides... Tommy over there caught a slug down low, and he's already begging for a drink. You reach down, finger in the dirt, and come up with some small, smooth pebbles to pop in your mouth. An old-timer's trick to help alleviate the thirst. And you run through your options. This ain't the movies, so there'll be no John Wayne riding in with the cavalry. And hell, if the cavalry actually did show up, they wouldn't know who to shoot first. The Apache or you. Thus is the life of an outlaw. Still, though, a U.S. government-issued bullet would be a hell of a lot better than what happens if them Apache down there get their hands on you. You've heard the stories, maybe even seen the bodies yourself. The bleached bones of other unlucky bastards scattered across the arid wasteland. Save the last bullet for yourself. Ain't that what they say? Now hold on now, let's just think this thing through. If there's only a few Mescalero out there, and sure as shit they are Mescalero, you might just have a chance. Unfortunately, judging by the rounds they're starting to send your way, there's at least half a dozen. That's 12 hardened killers who spent their entire lives perfecting the dark art of warfare. And there ain't but five of you. Make that four. Tommy doesn't stop moving. So what do you do? Obviously, you don't just lay down and die, right? You put up a fight. If your time's up, then your time's up, but you damn sure ain't going to make it easy on them. You'll sell yourself dearly, make them earn that scalp. Talk yourself into it. Begin working yourself up. Hell, I've been through tougher scrapes. This came out all right. Don't they know who the fuck I am? You lever another round into your Winchester, just in time. Here they come, boys. Steady now. Make every shot count. The words still hanging in the air as they fling themselves into your midst, screaming like demons. Bronze devils bubbling up from the desert floor. You drop one, then another as the bullets ricochet off the rocks and tug at your clothing. The sound of men screaming in defiance and fear as you choke on the dust and smoke filling your lungs. Your eyes stinging as you work the action on your rifle again and again and... They're gone. Once again, breaking off their charge as quickly as it began. Probing attack. Sons of bitches were just testing us. Oddly enough, you begin to laugh. That same peculiar feeling in your guts that you felt so many times before after cheating death. A deep, infectious belly laugh that spreads to your compadres. The type of laugh that feels truly earned. Honest. Ah, but then the adrenaline wears off and reality creeps in and something akin to fear begins tickling at your insides. In addition to testing your strength with that recent assault, them Apache also did for the last of your horses. And brother, it's one hell of a long way back to that last watering hole. You glance at the sky, judging there's a few more hours yet till sunset, thinking you'll break free in the cover of darkness, if you and the boys can make it that long. 
You top off your rifle and then start counting your ammunition, or what's left of it. A measly four shells. Wishing now that you bought a couple more boxes back when you had the chance. Once again, the thought enters your mind. Save the last bullet for yourself. (laughs) But you won't, and neither will your pards. Nah, there'll be no suicide pack here among these boulders. You're all too damn mean to go out like that. And young to boot, possessing that immortal optimism known only to young men with their entire lives ahead of them. An optimism that sometimes, every now and then, pays off in spades. Now, by God, if you and the boys can last till nightfall, then you'll make a break for it. Throw caution to the wind, curse the fates, and, providence calls for it, go down swinging your empty rifles like clubs. Still, though, you can't help but think of Juanita and all them other Spanish angels. And you begin rummaging through your pockets, coming out with a piece of rolling paper and a stub of a pencil, scribbling out a quick note, just in case. What's up, y'all? My name is Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. That little bit of fiction you just heard is something I kind of made up, so my apologies. I'm not exactly Ernest Hemingway, nor am I a voice actor. Hopefully, though, I painted a semi-realistic picture of what it'd be like getting attacked by the Apache. You know, just getting surrounded and outgunned. It's a drama that was played out more than once in real life down in southern New Mexico back in the old days. And believe it or not, the infamous Billy the Kid may have found himself in a situation very similar to the one I just described. Let me preface this by saying that I'm no expert on Billy the Kid, but I ain't exactly a stranger to the man either. However, I did learn some very fascinating new information about Kid Antrim, new to me at least. Some information you may find as interesting as I did. Hat tip to True West Magazine, by the way, is then that supplied me with said information, as well as unknowingly inspiring me to record this episode, and teasing my imagination while they were at it. In a recently published article titled Billy the Kid and the Apaches, author and historian James B. Mills included a tantalizing tidbit about a little something known as the Last Stand Note. Discovered sometime prior to 1952 in the Florida mountains of southwestern New Mexico, the note, written on a piece of tobacco paper and stuffed inside an empty shell case, reads as follows. This is our last shell and about 10 Indians left, so our chances look slim. But we are going to take a chance. Yours truly, William Bonney. What? William Bonney? The William Bonney? Our William Bonney? Now, this last stand note is what educated people like to call apocryphal means it's of doubtful authenticity, spurious, likely contrived or fabricated. And hell, let's not fool ourselves. They're probably right. Call me skeptical, whatever you want. It just seems too easy. But still, what if? What if Billy the Kid did find himself hopelessly surrounded by Apache and out of ammo? And not everybody is convinced that it is fake. According to the now-deceased historian Maurice G. Fulton, The handwriting on the note stands up well when compared to a sampling of the real Billy Bonney's penmanship. Furthermore, the doctor posits, had the note been placed as a hoax by some trickster, they likely would have gone with the more obvious route and signed it as Billy the Kid, as opposed to William Bonney. Also, what are the odds that someone's going to go through all the trouble of attempting to replicate the kid's own handwriting? Now, unfortunately, thus far, I have not been able to find out much more information on this last stand note but I was able to find some pictures of it, which I will link to in this episode's show notes. Remember, it's not authenticated, and I doubt it ever will be. Man, it sure is intriguing. 
Looks like it was sold in an auction in Arizona back in 2019 for just $3,025. Not a bad payday for a hoax. And one hell of a deal if it was actually written by the kid. So, now that we've got the speculation out of the way, did Billy the Kid ever have any known run-ins with the Apache? The answer is a resounding yes. Turns out he had more than a few close encounters with the Southwestern indigenous. The first that we know of occurred sometime in the fall of 1877, not too long after Billy had killed his first man over in Arizona, that blacksmith Wendy Cahill. Killed him and broke out of jail there in Camp Grant and lit out for New Mexico. Once in the territory, somewhere in or near the Guadalupe Mountains, he and a companion were ambushed, likely by the Apache. The kid was able to hide and make his way out on foot, but still, it was a very desolate area. It took him three nights of walking and laying low during the day to finally make it to the no longer existing town of Seven Rivers, where a good Samaritan took him in, tended to his torn and bloody feet, gave him some warm goat milk and a place to rest. And Billy wasn't the only one losing horses to the Apache there in New Mexico around this time. They made a hobby of stealing from ranchers like John Chisholm, who, over the course of a few years, lost 1,700 head of cattle, horses, and mules, a loss valued at more than $90,000 at the time, or nearly $2.5 in today's money. And we know that Chisholm ranch hand and future regulator Josiah Doc Scurlock had him a couple of run-ins with the Apache as well. In one such incident, he and another man were working as line riders and got surprised by about five mescalero. The other man was killed almost immediately along with all the horses, and Doc hid among the rocks just trading shots with the warriors until they finally gave up and let him alone. On another occasion, Scurlock returned to his line shack and found another partner dead, missing both scalp and nose. Seems like it was a full-time job just staying alive in New Mexico back in the 1870s. And make no mistake about it, the gringos and Mexicans stole plenty of horses from the Apache as well, especially once the tribe was settled on reservations. Ranchers and cowboys did it, Jesse Evans and his gang did it, and so did the Lincoln County Regulators. Which brings us back to Billy the Kid and his other known encounters with the Apache. Full disclosure, one of them is unverifiable, kind of anecdotal, so I'll go ahead and start with it. Story goes that the kid once used some sopapillas to distract a dog long enough for him to quietly untie a mule from an Apache lodge not too far from Fort Stanton. Evidently, those delicious delicacies kept the dog busy and docile long enough for the kid to make off with said mule and other stock, laying low before then driving the ill-gotten animals on over to Mr. Chisholm's place. I guess they were still friends when all this went down. And sopapillas, for those of you who've never dated a Mexican, it's kind of a fried tortilla with a bunch of sugar and sometimes cinnamon. Evidently, Billy was nice enough to all them New Mexican senoritas that they kept him well supplied with such sweets. The other time that we know for a fact Billy was stealing from the Apache was in early August of 1878, almost a year after he killed that blacksmith and after the Lincoln County War. Man, it's crazy how quick the kid's career was. I sometimes forget how much action was packed into such a short amount of time. Billy didn't go to work for Mr. Tunstall until November of 1877. Three months later, Tunstall's murdered. The kid and the other regulators get deputized in March. A month after that, they make Sheriff Brady reap that whirlwind. Then in April, they had that famous gunfight at Blazer's Mill with the tough-as-nails Buckshot Roberts, the one that put Dick Brewer under. And then mid-July, you had the siege in Lincoln with the kid and them others holed up at McSween's place. Basically, like all of Young Guns 1 took place in nine months. And then just three weeks later, 
August 5th, 1878, Billy and what was left of the Regulators, along with some Mexican friends, rode to the Mescalero Apache Reservation with plans to steal themselves some fresh mounts. By the way, like I mentioned earlier, I'm no expert on Billy the Kid, so please uh, double check all those dates for me. Let me know if I got anything wrong. Back to the story. As the Regulators and friends neared the Mescalero Agency, they paused at a nearby spring to water their horses. At least Billy and the Regulators did. For whatever reason, the Mexicans rode on ahead without stopping. Moments later, gunshots rang out, spooking the kid's horse and causing it to bolt. Turns out Billy's amigos had run into some Apache that didn't take kindly to having their horses taken. When agency clerk Morris J. Bernstein saddled up to investigate, he was unfortunate enough to get caught in the middle and stop one or more fatal rounds. Bullets supposedly fired by regulator ally Adonacio Martinez. The Indian agent himself, a guy named Frederick Godfroy, ran back to the nearby agency, got him some soldiers and more Apache, and they all came gunning for the regulators. Billy, still not able to locate his damn horse, jumped up behind George Coe, and the pair quickly raced to the agency's corrals under a hell of gunfire. The kid leaping off the back of George's mountain onto an Apache pony, riding off on it bareback with a whole bunch more horses than they came with. Now, we don't know if Billy even fired a shot. He for sure didn't kill Bernstein. Hell, he didn't even see the man get killed. But he would get blamed for it nevertheless. At this point in his career, I reckon it didn't matter much. He was already a marked man with less than two years left to live. So yeah, Billy most definitely had personal experience with the Apache and came out unscathed. But what about those who didn't? Was anyone ever involved in a siege like the one I described in the intro? Surrounded by the Apache and forced to make a desperate last stand out of ammunition? Once again, the answer is yes. One such example is the Freeman-Thompson stage that was ambushed back in 1861. As soon as the Apache opened up fire, the seven passengers immediately bailed out of the wagon, grabbing rifles and ammo, and headed for cover, not knowing that they were only putting off the inevitable. Now, these men were well-armed with Springfield breech loaders, and they were experienced, some having tasted combat already. But can't no seven men hold out for long against the estimated 300 Apache warriors, especially without water. Still, though, they did make it possibly as long as three days before the Apache were finally able to finish them off. If you ever get a chance, I highly recommend the book The Education of a Wandering Man by Louis L'Amour. You're probably familiar with the author and his many fiction Western novels, especially the ones that were turned into movies like Hondo, The Shadow Riders, The Quick and the Dead, Conniger. Now, The Education of a Wandering Man is a nonfiction biography, kind of a memoir of his recollections of his early years just being a hobo and working odd jobs all over the world and all the books he read along the way and the interesting people he met. One of those interesting people was an old man, a wolfer, who the then 16-year-old Lemur was hired to help skin some cattle with up in the Texas panhandle. Now, this guy claimed to have been captured by the Apache as a child and adopted into the tribe. He also claimed to have been a witness to the battle there that wiped out those Freeman stage passengers. Now, take all this for what it is. You know, Lemur wrote this from memory some 60 years after hearing the story from the old man, who at that time would already have been pushing 80. As such, there are certain details that they got wrong. For instance, Lamour said that the battle happened at the entrance of Doubtful Canyon. It did not. It actually occurred about 100 miles further east in Cook's Canyon. Still, though, if this old man was telling the truth, I think it's worth hearing. And what that wolfer said about the end of the fight, I also think is very interesting. So, according to Lamour, the old man had this to say, quote, At last, midday in the third afternoon, the shooting ended, and after a long time, 
the Apache began to expose themselves. When there was no more firing, they went down, one after another, until hundreds were gathered. The ammunition was all gone. One of the last men had broken the extra rifles so that they would not be available for use by the Apache. All seven of the defenders died, the last one, or perhaps two, dying by his own hands with his last bullet, rather than suffer the torture that awaited him if taken alive. End quote. There you go. Save that last bullet for yourself. It's also worth pointing out that in the same area, not very long after, about eight or nine Mexican herders suffered the same fate. They were driving about 40 head of cattle, paused to have lunch, and they too were surrounded and massacred, killed down to the last man. And I know all this happened in 1861 when the kid was still probably sucking at his mama's teeth, but it's not like the Apache just up and went away. Almost 20 years later, when our very own William H. Bonney was very much in his prime, the Apache were still raising hell in the Cooks Canyon area. In early June of 1880, according to Dan Thrapp in The Conquest of Apacheria, quote, Major Morrow with four troops struck the hostiles in Cooks Canyon, not far from Fort Cummings, killed 10 and wounded three, capturing much livestock. One of the dead was said to have been the Raider Washington, Victorio's son, end quote. Even as late as the summer of 1884, the Apache attacked a caravan of farmers hauling produce through Cook's Canyon. According to one source, quote, the Indians attacked the ox-drawn carts. The way of traveling at the time was in two-wheeled carts with a fairly large bed to carry merchandise. The caravan was soon massacred and the complete load of merchandise was destroyed. And these are just a few examples. You know, no telling how many other people were completely massacred in these canyons of southern New Mexico. I mean, that's why Doubtful Canyon is called Doubtful Canyon. It was doubtful if you wrote in that your ass was coming back out alive. But the reason I'm focusing so much on Cook's Canyon is because of its location. Present-day Luna County, New Mexico. Just 30 short miles away from the Florida mountains where that cryptic last stand note was found. So what do you think? Is it possible that Billy the Kid could have found himself in a similar situation as all those others who died in nearby Cook's Canyon? Absolutely. But did he? Did he really write that note or was it some practical joker looking to cause some excitement? And if Billy did indeed scribble it out, what do you think was going through his head? Did he begin to regret some of his life choices or curse the unfairness of it all? Or did he accept his fate stoically, knowing that life is but a morning fog? A mist that appears before a moment and then vanishes. Or, as I alluded to in my intro, was he like most young men his age and feeling invincible, thinking he'd live forever, not knowing that he didn't have too much longer till he'd utter his last words? Ken S. A question answered by two slugs from Pat Garrett's revolver. Email me and let me know what you think. Or head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button. I'm very curious to get y'all's opinion on this. I don't know. Like I said, I just learned of this last stand note and thought it was so interesting. I just had to tell somebody. Make sure you check out that article on True West Magazine in this episode's show notes, as well as the link to the pictures and uh, the auction site where it was sold. If you like what you hear, please share this episode with somebody and make sure you subscribe and or follow. Why not? It's free. You're going to want to stay tuned for lots more tales from the wild and woolly West. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you had a wonderful 4th of July. And remember, you're Billy the Kid too, you know. You all are. Dirty little Billy bastards. Adios. Adios.